Guardian Books is pleased to present listeners of this podcast with a special offer on House of Fun, a bumper collection of Simon Hoggart's 20 years of parliamentary sketch writing. Labour launched its manifesto yesterday, or rather, it opened a coal hole and poured several tons of nutty slack down on the voters. I am extremely calm, the Prime Minister replied, but he said it like Herbert Lom as Inspector Clouseau's boss. Caroline Flint is regarded as something of a hard-line toady, an aardvark-tongued bootlicker, a member of an active service unit in the Greaser's provisional wing. To get your hardback copy of Simon's book for half price, go to guardianbookshop.co.uk forward slash hoggett and enter the code hoggett. This offer is for two weeks only and is exclusive to this podcast. The Guardian. This inquiry has been the most concentrated look at the press this country has ever seen. In a defining week for the British media and UK politics, Lord Justice Leveson calls for a new era of strict state-backed regulation of the press. What does it mean for the future of newspapers, and what chance Leveson's proposals ever becoming reality? I'm not convinced at this stage that statute is necessary to achieve Lord Justice Leveson's objectives. I believe there may be alternative options for putting in place incentives, providing reassurance to the public, and ensuring the Leveson principles of regulation are put in place, and these options should be explored. David Cameron set up the inquiry, but he's rejected the central proposition, an ultimate state backstop to any new regulation, angering victims of phone hacking who say he's gone back on his word. The issue has also split the coalition. So far from allowing greater overlap, the laws that have been proposed give us a chance to create a hard wall between politics and the press. So what happens now? What questions need answering? And who were the winners and losers in a report that delved into every murky crevice of the modern newsroom? Joining me in this joint edition of Media Talk and Politics Weekly, I have in the studio, aka the Last Chance Saloon, The Guardian's head of media and tech, Dan Saber, and Stig Abel, a former director of the Press Complaints Commission. Joining us down the line are our senior political commentator and Guardian assistant editor, Michael White, and media commentator and former Fleet Street editor, Roy Greenslade. A warm welcome to you all. When it finally dropped into Fleet Street's inboxes, it weighed in at nearly 2,000 pages. Lord Leveson's report into the culture, ethics and practices of the press distilled months of evidence gathered into one damning document. His remedy? A new beefed-up independent regulator backed up, ultimately, by state legislation. Dan Saber, set aside what may happen as a result of the report just now, but as a piece of work, as Leveson said, the most concentrated look ever at media ethics, what did it tell us about Fleet Street? The judge didn't sort of go for the jugular on any point. One thought he might have done. Nobody resigned as a result of his report, one might argue. Uh, again, a sign of this sort of nuanced and complex report that he'd produced. It, its size made it frustratingly difficult to grip. But what he did try to do was set out a case for prosecution against the press in broad terms, talking about how uh, the, the the distress that it caused the lives of people like the Dowlers and the McCanns, uh, how some how celebrities are considered fair game, how some practices of the press, like phone hacking, but also harassment, if you like, were out, were outrageous, to use one of his words. And then, having done so, setting out a sort of a broad case for reform, then said that there needs to be some sort of tighter and more effective regulation. Uh, in doing so, he rejected the 
sort of proposal for reforming the PCC put out by Laws Hunt and Black. So you've got to have something tougher that's more independent than the industry. And as you just touched on, most controversially, that it's got to be sort of supported by a law. And that's obviously the thing that sort of caused all the, you know, all, all the excitement, all the trouble. But Little Justice Leveson's view was that you just need some kind of mechanism outside outside the industry that just toughens things up and that gives rise to public confidence because in the end uh, in his view if the the dowlers and the mccanns and uh, unfortunately there'll be people like that to come uh, hereafter if they don't feel that the press has changed that there's not something tough hanging over the press then what is the point of change the reform will not be enough Roy, this, this, uh, the issue of whether there's going to be legislation to back up the new regulator, that, that's the thing that's, that's really uh, focused minds on Fleet Street and, and dominated the response in today's editorials. Yes, every paper bar The Guardian are heavily against any form of statutory involvement. Uh, the Guardian appear a little more relaxed about it, although they've made it very clear they'd rather do without So there is still a unity among editors, among newspapers and publishers that the idea of a statutory backstop is unacceptable, is a threat to press freedom. Of course, there are degrees uh, in the opposition. The Sun is uh, utterly implacable, as is the Daily Mail and Daily Telegraph. And just to show it's not a right-wing conspiracy, the Independent is made it very clear through a bylined article by its editor as well as the leading article that it is opposed to. And uh, the only thing that that, uh, worries the Daily Mail more than statutory legislation, Roy, is the the possible role of Ofcom in all this. Yes, well, they've never really liked Ofcom very much. They see it, they say, as some kind of uh, Labour Party quango. Uh, That's how they bill it today, filled with uh, Gordon Brown appointments. Uh, I'm afraid they... um, they can construct a conspiracy theory out of very little, as they've been doing of late. And so they see Ofcom as possibly some kind of Labour Party attempt to quash the freedom of the press, which means, of course, quashing the Daily Mail. And Michael White, it was David Cameron, of course, who set this inquiry up. But, uh, and he said originally that he'd act on its um, recommendations as long as it didn't come up with anything that was uh, bonkers, I think was his, was his phrase. Yep. But now it seems that he's inclined to ignore the central one on regulation. What, what, what does this mean politically? Well, it's very hard to predict. Uh, I've just been sitting here doing the numbers. Uh, there are 306 Tory MPs, 258 Labour, 57 Lib Dem. If you put the Labour and Lib Dems together, you get 315 to 306. Uh, they'd all be pretty united on that. And then, of course, uh, you've got the minor parties, could go either way, you can always buy off the Irish, and you've got uh, a split within the Tory party. It's a familiar split between what you might call the old school, uh, rather sort of um, liberal Tories, uh, not in the economic sense, versus, uh, versus the party right. And interesting, the Tory MPs speaking yesterday in the chamber who were supportive of Cameron's decision to say, well, this is all jolly good, but let's give the press uh, just one uh, more chance in last chance, chance saloon. Let's refurbish it, as Simon Hoggart said in his sketch. Let's uh, you know, open up a new bar. Um, they were, the, the Tory MPs supporting Cameron were the Eurosceptics. You couldn't help but notice the self-styled libertarians, anti-tax, anti-state, uh, anti-interference uh, libertarians. And it's an interesting division. If push came to shove, Labour's planning a vote in uh, January. It's only an indicative vote. I'm not sure who would get a majority. 
Dan, some people might be confused that Cameron came out and said, well, he was minded not to, uh, he was fearful of any sort of legislation. But a, a few hours later, we hear that the Department of Culture, Media and Sport is, is, is forming a, a draft bill on this very topic. So, uh, you know, clear that confusion that some people might have. I think it, lots of interesting, I think, movement back and forth at, at number 10, just on the on that sort of bill itself. I mean, the, I mean, the idea is sort of draft up a bill that everyone can then laugh at, and, and or at least the Tories will hope that everyone will laugh at and say, oh, it's totally unworkable and how right Mr Cameron is. So, you know, I suppose that serves a purpose and taxpayers' money is being well spent there. But I think there's been some really interesting sort of movement back and forth at uh, at number 10. I mean, sort of only last week they were talking about maybe Cameron will sort of actually not make a very specific declaration on Leveson Day and give everyone a few months to sort of sort their own, you know, sort out their own house, sort to get the press to sort out his own house, and then he might come back. Uh, And in fact, I think he gave it about an hour and a half and he just ruled out one of the judge's key recommendations. So... You know, I think his position sort of hardened up. Now, maybe that was because of the campaign from the mostly from from the press and particularly the right wing part of the press that made him think that in the end, when push comes to shove, these are my friends. Also, I think there's what's in the report itself, which is in the end, the report was not terribly critical of the government or his government in particular. Uh, um, more critical of Murdoch, but not terribly critical of him. He just made this rather broad point that you know the press and politicians, proprietors and politicians have got too close over the last 30 or 35 years. And I mean, everyone can agree to that. So he was not so much on the defensive as he might have been. And he could come out and suddenly say within an hour and a half, well, Leveson, not bad, but you know, you're wrong in this point. I thought Leveson was trying to be conciliatory there. He was trying to be political and not pick an unnecessary fight with the press uh, or indeed, uh, uh, sorry, with the police or the politicians. He was surprisingly gentle towards the coppers, I have to say. Not even the Daily Mail believes that. And uh, I just thought he doesn't want to give Cameron an excuse uh, to back off the main recommendations. But uh, uh, Cameron's under a lot of pressure. We understand that. Even The Guardian has been quite consensual, you know. Uh, I've lost count of the number of times I've heard in the last week all the press is against state regulation and the Guardian's leader this morning isn't particularly clear. Um, My own feeling is that I'm against it too. It would be if I didn't know that we've had seven uh, uh, royal commissions and other things since 1949 have all given them one last chance and it hasn't made much difference. So uh, I just uh, uh, expect that in the next year or two the press will commit some gross monstrosity. They had to pay out, the son had to pay out half a million to, uh, to Louis Walsh, the X Factor judge, only this week. Its coverage this morning is pretty biased against Leveson. And uh, Kate McCann, she's a pretty good witness. You have to look pretty hard in the Daily Mail to find her picture today. But the male leading the pack uh, was uh, savage towards the McCanns, uh, as so are so many papers. And she's a pretty good poster girl, better than Hugh Grant, for what the press gets up to when it uh, uh, doesn't behave. But isn't, isn't the, the Louis Walsh case, didn't that happen in a place with, with statutory underpinning? In Ireland, isn't that? I mean, one of the the, the, the Leveson. No, it was repeated in the British press. I think I'm right in saying. It was, although but, Walsh had denied it. But it was begun in the Irish press. And it's just, I mean, the, the notion, one of the problems with this debate is sometimes that the, the idea of statutory underpinning appears as this sort of panacea that will fix everything. And the Louis Walsh case, to a certain extent, demonstrates you can have statutory underpinning. It doesn't necessarily represent the the, the one clear yeah. answer. Yeah. 
this is all about redress, surely. Um, you know, the newspapers can do what they want. They can break the law as long, and, uh, and as, long as they're accountable. David Lear, the Guardian, admitted breaking the law. Uh, he blagged uh, something important, but uh, Leveson accepted they had every right to do so in the public interest. Louis Walsh wasn't in the public interest, and it wasn't true. The, the other thing about Louis Walsh is he's a wealthy individual, well able to, to, come, yep. to come to court and seek redress. And I think one of the things that Lord Justice Leveson's tried to do, and that's why we sort of keep returning to the McCanns and the Dowlers, Christopher Jeffries, these sort of folks is, is is much harder you know for ordinary people without the means to go you know to go to law now of course they were able to get cfas no win no fees uh, uh, agreements from lawyers but that's being struck out next year so suddenly that route to justice is being denied and i think you know one of the things the judge wanted to do was say well what we've got to do is have a sort of an effective complaint system a revamp pcc and also this sort of low-cost tribunal system a legal system where you can get compensation and so forth if you've been injured but it costs not much money and that from that perspective, it seems like quite a reasonable proposal, but it's set against this implacable view of the press that we must not have any state involvement, and Cameron's buckled in that. Well, before we hear more from Stig Abel, um, let's hear what The Guardian's editor, Alan Rushbridge, had to say. He gave his verdict to our own Lisa O'Carroll. Well, I think there will be better regulation in future. A year ago, it was commonplace for, for journalists to say that the PCC was wonderful and that it was independent and it was rigorous and everyone feared it. No one says that now. The, the solution that, that uh, Lords Black and Hunt came up with, which was, uh, and it's certainly an improvement, uh, they came up with something that was more independent and tougher and had sanctions. Leveson said it came nowhere near meeting his idea of what a regulator should be. So, um, you know, the industry will move again and we will end up with something that is modern regulation, which I, which I think will be good. The carrot that Leveson is proposing to get people into this, because it, remember he's proposing that it should be voluntary, not, not statute, is a, a quick, fast uh, and cheap way of resolving um, libel and privacy disputes. I think that's good, and you know the, the press has always complained about the cost of, of, of the, these kind of cases. Where it starts getting a bit hazy is some of the involvement of Ofcom uh, and whether that's necessary or desirable and whether that has to be backed by law and whether if you don't get voluntary regulation you get Ofcom. I think that's an area for debate. um, And where do you you think the issues lie um, within the newspaper industry? Well, everybody's clearly anxious about statute. Um, The only question is whether you need statute, and I imagine Lord Justice Leveson consulted with fellow judges and probably the Lord Chief Justice before putting that in, but there are some people who say you don't need that, so that'll be one area of discussion. And then the the other area of discussion is whether you, you need any form of Ofcom or statutory underpinning of the whole idea of regulation. Uh, and I'm sure lots of people in the industry will try and uh, persuade the politicians that, that, that that's not necessary. Stig, we heard you talk about Louis, Louis Walsh um, earlier. Looking at the report, and Dan's touched on this, saying that no one, resi- no one resigned as a, as a result of, the, uh, uh, of Leveson, um, it was... It, it, there wasn't particular criticism of the police. There were, Jeremy Hunt was was cleared of any of any wrongdoing. It seemed the only people that the only people that really got it in the neck was that was the Press Complaints Commission. Yeah, and quite a lot of what it said about the the PCC was, of course, fair enough. I mean, it is striking if you if you look at it on that sort of very simple level. There's a whole group of uh, powerful institutions that were subject to the Leveson inquiry, including individual newspapers, political parties, individual politicians, and of course the police. None of whom will be feeling very bruised yesterday evening or, or, or this morning and uh, that to me is quite a striking sight and actually because we're in, engaged in this quite throaty debate about statutory regulation or underpinning or whatever 
to a certain extent, we are also uh, moving away from, from the notion of what was he, he, he actually looking at. And he started looking at phone hacking. He didn't really make any findings of fact for understandable reasons. But the police investigation that was around phone hacking, which was one of the, the subjects of the, of the initial Guardian reporting, has been almost given a, a clean bill of health. And the, the, a lot of the tone about both the police and the politicians was, well, there might have been one or two little bits and bobs wrong, but generally speaking, uh, they're all good guys and uh, it's going to get better in the future. Now, that may be the, be the correct position, but it is at least striking. Uh, that this uh, this judge who was such a powerful voice against the establishment or was seen as such a powerful voice against the establishment has on a number of different levels endorsed the establishment through this report. Roy, there's plenty of focus on, on, on what he had to say about the press, but what, what did you make of, of what Levison had to say about the, the politicians and the, and the police? Did it, did it come close to a whitewash in any respect? Well, I did feel uh, that he was very, very soft on the police. He's accepted the, the arguments they made in front of the inquiry, which at the time didn't strike me as very convincing. So I'm quite surprised about that. I take Michael White's point, though, that he may be engaged here in, um, in political tactics in the sense that if he was just simply to damn everyone, then he would have the united establishment against him by going a bit soft on the police, by going somewhat soft on the politicians, and also, by the way, being quite restrained in terms of individual journalists, I think that he has decided he wants to play politics by ensuring that his central recommendations relating to press regulation stand the best possible chance of going through. There's an irony there, though, Roy, isn't there? Because this was supposed to be the end of sort of politicization of this type of decision making I mean one of the problems that he was asked to address was how much politics interferes with the course of uh, of decision making by the establishment and if his answer to that is itself an act of politics that's at least an irony isn't it no let's get real politics exists and uh, Leveson was trying to take account of it he had to make a political judgment of course you do the idea that judges are devoid of political views or calculation is ridiculous famous remark they follow the election returns and Leveson thinks the voters are in favor of a better grip on the press of course the voters want their cake and eat it as usual they want to read all this filth and then they want to deplore it and what did you make of it? Cause it started off as, a, as an inquiry into the, into the culture, ethics and practices of the press. But, I mean, a lot of the headlines and a lot of the heat generated were revolved around, you know, Jeremy Hunt and, uh, you know, his relationship with Fred Michelle. And then we had uh, Cameron and his text messages with, uh, with Rebecca Brooks. And that, uh, you know, the... F- the focus of the report certainly wasn't on that. Well, Levison was handed a fantastically broad remit, and he was looking at well, not just the, you know the culture, practice, and ethics of the press, and its relations with the public, with the with the police, and with politicians. I mean, the, you know, an astonishingly wide remit, and I mean, very difficult. You know, the judge's been asked to sort of take in everything from the sort of informal operation of the British Constitution uh, uh, down to off the record briefings down the pub between one copper and one junior hack. So, you know, how he was going to sort of to, to sort of play across that whole stage is very difficult. I think, though, one thing also quite interesting happened to the Leveson inquiry when he got into module three, which was they started to sort of excavate, I think, into the into the B Sky B bid, and then they sort of produced this extraordinary revealing cache of emails, the Fred Michelle emails, James Murdoch's special advisor, who was all over, well, to a lesser extent, Jeremy Hunt, but all over Jeremy Hunt's pad, that the unfortunate Adam Smith who had to quit as a result. 
And suddenly as they started really digging those emails and those text messages and the sort of relationships, the heart of government, you were seeing something you never normally see. You know, how, if you like, the powerful communicate, how decisions are taken. And then having gone into it, you sort of sense they started to back off again. And actually, if they really started to dig around on how government worked, then, I mean, I'm not sure any government could have survived the pressure, actually. And and, and the, I think there was a moment there where the inquiry felt like it was almost out of control. Or, or, or even if you wanted, even if its remit was to say, well, we do want to look at the relationship between Murdoch and successive prime ministers. It, it, it was almost too much to look at in too much depth. There's a great recommendation, actually, that about um, the contact between politicians and senior journalists, that they're, they're supposed to, on a quarterly basis, declare the frequency and density of emails and text messages, but without revealing their content. And that seems to me an extraordinary position that at some point is David Cameron going to say, I had three texts the other day from, uh, from senior journalists, but I'm not going to tell you what's in them. Um, that doesn't seem to me like a hugely uh, likely scenario to we were ever going to get to. That was one of the details of Levson's recommendations, alongside Roy, the idea that there should be no more off-the-record briefings between uh, police and journalists. I mean, what, what did you make of some of the, sort of the, the finer points of what he's proposing on a practical basis? Well, that particular one uh, struck me as a bit of a crackpot thought, actually, of all the things in the report that I've read so far. And by the way, I haven't done the full 2,000 pages, but and I'm working my way through it gradually. But uh, that really leapt out at me, this idea that uh, we couldn't have off-the-record, unattributable briefings from the police is quite ridiculous. How the hell do you think we got the hacking story? Uh, how do we get many stories? That, I'm afraid, is a bit of nonsense and shows an unusual naivety because he seems uh, at various points to have really cottoned on to how our business runs. But in that particular case, I'm afraid he's way out of line. I think it's important that we acknowledge the, the criticisms of, uh, of the, the, this report by the other side. I mean, I don't think any of the paper's coverage today covers themselves in glory. It's all pretty pretty partisan uh, on both sides of the, of the argument. Roy's right about the police thing. Although Mrs. Elizabeth uh, Filkin, classic kind of busybody lady, full of good intentions, made the same proposal a few uh, uh, years ago that there should be no off-the-record briefings with the cops. It's absurd, as Roy says. But there are plenty of other things, one of which we haven't mentioned is that the backstop regulator should be Ofcom, who is the sort of broader media regulation. And a lot of people have a lot of doubts about that, including uh, The Guardian and the FT. Uh, not a very suitable choice for a whole uh, host of technical reasons. So the other side does have a case, and naivety is a good word to describe some of the things Leveson comes up with, though he's pretty cute in other ways. Yeah, there, there, are, there are other finer points in the report that are problematic. There was a proposed sort of redefinition of some of the rules in, uh, uh, around the protection of source material under police, yep. P- police and Criminal Evidence Act. And, and, and here, you know, a real problem where it was, uh, you know, what he was proposing was a new, incredibly restrictive definition of protected journalistic source material, which is really anything that had been under contract between you and the other party since day one, which is the sort of thing you might do if, in the old days of a sort of Sunday red top tabloid, where you'd sort of got a, got, got a young woman locked up in a hotel room who, who said she'd had a fling with a footballer, and you'd sort of signed a contract with her on, on, on day one, and you were using some stuff off the record. So you might be able to protect her as a source, but, but you know, your informal contract conversation with a you know a reporter's informal conversation with a senior politician or a or a police officer would be totally unprotected because you you hadn't been so rash as to hand them a piece of paper would you mind signing this so there, there was a lack of although the i think the overall recommendation was was an attempt at being cute there was a, a lot of sort of lack of deft touches throughout yeah but reporters can protect their sources uh if they have to and sometimes you, you end up in prison for it but that's what uh, occasionally reporters should do so that's not a black and white issue 
issue either. Uh, you refuse to tell, you refuse to tell. Well, I think the important thing here is that we, we do understand, do we not? And Michael's made this point in relation to David Lee, but we can make it endless number of times. And that is, in spite of most laws not offering us any public interest defense, if we were to get stories, our reporters get stories which are in the public interest and can be manifestly seen to be so, then it's fair enough to end up in court and place yourself uh, in front of the jury and say, yes, I broke the law and I did it for this reason. It worked for Clive Ponting and uh, I, it would work, in my view, in other cases. It too, worked for the also... Daily Telegraph. Uh, everybody except the Daily Telegraph, which won't admit it, thinks they paid money for a bootlegged, i.e. stolen, copy of the CD of MPs' expenses, which is clearly in breach of the law. But the public interest, uh, it goes without saying, prevailed Absolutely. overwhelmingly. They weren't even charged. Quite, quite, quite. And uh, you see, that's the other thing. I don't think the prosecuting authorities would want to get into the embarrassment of suing journalists who produce the kind of evidence that the Daily Telegraph did in relation to MPs' expense. Uh, Keir Starmer has actually toughened up the public interest defence lately, hasn't he? Yes. No, that, his, his actually, um, this, this was too easily papered over, I think, and, and forgotten about that Starmer... Conveniently. Yes. To Starmer's uh, redefinition or a definition, because it hadn't existed before at the DPP level, uh, is, is tremendously helpful to journalists. And it'll be tested, some of this stuff, in the, uh, in the trials for the Sun journalists for paying coppers, because presumably there'll be quite a wide range of things that, that, that payments were made for, and, and, and arguments about the public interest will no doubt uh, come into some of them. Well, let's move on now. One of the groups who are most vociferous in their acceptance of Leveson uh, hacked off the campaign group fronted by Hugh Grant. And one of its chief spokesmen is former Lib, Lib Dem MP Evan Harris. He spoke to Politics Weekly's Tom Clark, and Tom asked him if a Leveson bill had any chance at all of getting through Parliament. Well, I think we have to go one step at a time. Firstly, we have to establish what the Prime Minister's position is, clearly, and whether his mind is changeable on whether he's willing to make self-regulation independent and effective, as the Leveson report said it needed to be, through having the statutory underpinning. Um, if he's not, then clearly we can do the maths, and we can see that the Labour Party, plus the Liberal Democrats plus you know, between 40 and 70 Conservative MPs um, who want to see change, that represents a parliamentary majority. And if the government cannot act because it's split, then Parliament must act and mechanisms need to be found for the will of Parliament, which in this case overwhelmingly reflects, uh, reflects overwhelmingly the view of the public, 80% or more in favour of uh, independent regulation underpinned by statute. We need to find a way for that majority to have its voice heard in a democracy. And that's the next stage, if you like, of the campaign, if it does appear that the Prime Minister is brought in to uh, a pact with, the, with, with some aspects of the press. Nick Clegg, your own lead, uh, leader as a Liberal Democrat and um, the Deputy Prime Minister, he um, is sounding much warmer about Leveson. How hard do you think he wants to, to push this one? Well, I can't, I can't speak for him, but he's made the unprecedented step of of delivering a separate statement that is different, expresses a different view from that of the Prime Minister. And he was applauded uh, for that by Harriet Harman in, in response, uh, who welcomed his statement. And I've not yet been able to identify a significant difference between Ed Miliband and Nick Clegg and their positions on this. And we'll be speaking to them hopefully in the next 24 hours. And on that basis, uh, it seems to me that Nick Clegg will, will stay with the parliamentary majority and the majority of the public. 
and with the support of the victims. Um, Michael Evan Harris there pointed to the uh, the level of public support for this, but how much does this have? Uh, how much does this issue have sort of wider public residence? Do you think? Well, I'm very fond of uh, Evan Harris. He's an eager beaver, but when Evan Harris is in favour of something, in my experience, sensible people should think very hard about the case for being against it. And in this instance, he talks blithely about the will of Parliament. He didn't even mention the House of Lords. Heaven knows what might happen there. There are a lot of grandees. Some of them signed a letter drafted by Lord Fowler, Norman Fowler, former uh, uh, cabinet minister, former Home Affairs correspondent of the Times, uh, you know, broadly on Leveson's side. But that doesn't mean to say they'd carry the majority or the crossbench peers. Pretty tricky stuff. And in any case, opinion polls have been produced during this whole affair, which have shown the public to be on both sides of the argument. Uh, that's because they are on both sides of the argument. Uh, alas, the Sun and the Daily Mail sell more copies than the Guardian. I wish it wasn't so, but there it is. And the voters say, isn't it all dreadful? Mr. Dacre, the editor of the Mail, says, isn't it all dreadful? These paparazzi pictures, we'll never use them again. But his readers want to see those paparazzi pictures. And of course, he uses them again. So, Dan, what happens next? Newspaper editors have been told to go back to their newsrooms and prepare for regulation, as it were. I think editors are going to be meeting next week, and I think there's going to be a real sort of uh, heat on now to try and get some kind of agreement about some sort of effective, tougher-looking independent regulator, sort of Black Hunt too. although I think a lot of people won't want to see Lord Black directly involved with it, such as the sort of Fissy Paris, you know, balkanised nature of the newspaper business. You know, if you read all the leaders today and all the papers, they're quite, they all read about the same. They're all actually quite uniform formally dull and they all sort of say you know thank you know thank goodness for mr cameron not going for state regulation although it is at least amusing to see the mirror endorsing david cameron for once and saying it's not towing the party line with labor for once so those are certainly a rhetorical consensus as as to the way ahead the the question is can we get you know richard desmond in the same room as paul dacre or, or 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 whoever to actually agree but i mean I think what what Leveson's report has done is created a climate in which people really ought to get on and agree. And even I think David Cameron's sort of rhetoric should should be, you know, is encouraging enough in that area. So I think we'll get some kind of plan sometime over the next couple of months. And I suspect that you know, we'll have a sort of three or four very shouty days about this issue. But, uh, you know, then I think for the Labour Party and Liberal Party, if there's a half decent reform proposal, I can't see this sort of parliamentary majority that Evan Harris is talking about. I just can't see the will to sort of try and ram through some kind of statute as long as as long that is as the press can reach the agreement i think they can reach stick stick able uh, what, what chance do you think of the press reaching a consensus and if not law black possibly won't be welcome back to, to to have another go at this then who well there's a huge difficulty that has uh, affected and bedeviled the press for as long as i've had anything to do with it which is that they they're not very good at talking together. There's no one body that's ever represented them. They don't have an industry body that speaks uh, in one voice for them. And really, though, looking at it optimistically, you can say that there is agreement about 80% of all of this entirely. And there's been agreement for about 18 months about this in terms of the functions and the form of the institution that they're talking about. Almost everybody, probably even including Richard Desmond, agrees. The two issues that remain is really to do with appointments and how the funding body relates. These are actually, we were actually now at quite a wonkish level of detail, but these are massively significant points for some members of the industry. And so Guy Lord Black is involved because he's the chairman currently of the funding body. And But it, the difficult position he's now in is that one of the serious issues that remains is the status of a funding body and the status of the industry and being involved in that side of the business. So I think the editors will get together. I think they can agree on lots of it. But The Guardian calls for this figure to emerge 
Excalibur-like out of a misty lake to lead the industry together. Uh, they've not found one for, for the last 20-odd years. It's hard to see that they'll find one now. They may be able to get this done without it. They may just be enough agreement that they can, they can get, uh, without one person pulling them all together, they but, can but, get but, half the way here. Such people always exist. They had one in John Wakeham, Lord Wakeham. Incidentally, the press complains about uh, uh, political interference, but three of the five chairmen of the PCC, the Press Complaints Commission, useless body, bless it, have been Tory politicians taking the whip. Uh, David Hunt is a Tory politician. I like David Hunt, but he's a herbivore. He can't bang heads together and frighten these people. Uh, they'll skin them alive. Well, exactly. And the problem that you said is Wakeham was associated, if, if you see him as that guy who could bring the newspaper industry together, but that's not appropriate for a person trying to, to, to run a body involved in regulation. So they need someone who is not connected to the new body yep. uh, uh, to, to try and do this. And the fact that Wakeham was that type of fixer really demonstrated the precarious position constitutionally the PCC was in because it shouldn't have been his job to do that. But you need someone they're afraid of and they're they're not afraid and Guy Black is buried in the system he's a former director of the PCC he's an executive of the Daily Telegraph still for heaven's sake really crafty fellow but you wouldn't call Guy uh, the sort of chap you need to resolve this thing Guardian leaders right about that a judge or a judicial a retired judge or judicial figure would you know would be ideal although Ken, Ken Clark would be wonderful because he's sort of quite independent of all of us <laughs> so you think they're uh, going uh, to uh, ask for another judge to come together to deal no, with the recommendation it's really the, getting the chairman appointment right is actually really really important how it's done and who it is is, 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 a, is a game changer if you have a supine chairman on the on the mould of Peter Buscombe or, or Lord Hunt or I, I mean I'm no great was no great fan of Lord Wakeham I mean uh, I quite like Sir Christopher Mayer but there may not be many votes for no, that no you wouldn't, you wouldn't have my vote or, or, okay but if you get a really good chairman it makes all the difference and actually one of the things about Leveson was in his way he was a de facto regulator for 18 months and he brought people into his inquiry and and and, and, rough, and they got roughed up gently by Robert Jay and, and that was a quite an effective sort of period of regulation if you will probably the best we've had in the last but, well but, since forever but you're confusing that I'm not disagreeing with you, but you're confusing two things there. One is the figure that will bring the industry together to get to the figure who will then be the chairman of the new body. Plus, the recommendations from Leveson are really that the industry itself won't play much of a role in selecting that final figure. The problem that the, the first a barrier that needs to be overcome is that who's going to make sure that everyone round the table when the editors meet and the proprietors meet make sure that they can come to an agreement on the clear principles. Like I said, there's probably sufficient agreement that will happen anyway, but the notion of this driving, uniting industry figure, I think, is, is very hard to pick. Well, let's hear now from The Observer's Nick Cohen. He's author of You Can't Read This Book, and he's also a columnist in The Spectator, a magazine that has said it will refuse to recognise any state-backed regulator. I asked him why intelligent regulation should be rejected if backed by a benign state. An independent regulator set up by statute, appointed by the state, is one of the uh, great oxymorons and tautologies of this week and one of the greatest I've ever heard. This is going to be a type of state control of the press in Britain. The first we've seen since the Licensing Act, which uh, John Milton, uh, another great Englishman, protested against, uh, fell into disuse in the 1690s. There is a very naive belief uh, among people who really ought to know better that this won't affect serious journalism, it won't affect investigative journalism. If, you were to, if they could only step back and look at how uh, the, the, the judiciary and the state pander to the wealthy and the powerful when it comes to free speech issues in Britain, at how Britain has already become 
the libel capital of the world, how London has become known as a town called Sioux, a place where Saudi petrobillionaires and Icelandic bankers and Russian oligarchs come and receive a very good service from the judiciary. They'll perhaps uh, wake up a little. Dan, well, this takes us back to the beginning in one sense, uh, back to the S-word, statute, and uh, what Nick Cohen there said was a a very naive belief that this won't do great harm to freedom of speech in this country. Well... I think on the other side of the coin, we desperately need to do something about the costs of libel, costs of legal actions. And one of the things Leveson's trying to get proposed, get moving, is some sort of tribunal system, an alternative court, a low-cost court, you know, no lawyers in there, so that ordinary folks can come and bring cases and get redress against the press, but also so the bills for the press is reduced. I mean, you know, it's, it's absolutely critical that we don't, that, that newspapers are not sort of threatened every time somebody sues them with a sort of six-figure cost bill if on a technicality, uh, you know, despite good reporting, if on a technicality it goes the other way. So there's a real... You know, this absolutely needs to be dealt with. And the problem is, if you if you bin the Leveson law, then the question is, can you make this tribunal happen without without statute? And apparently, uh, over at the Guardian, we've consulted a lot of lawyers, and guess what the answer is? They're not sure, but they'd probably like some more money to work it out. So you're potentially losing something precious, and it's not clear if it can be rescued at this moment in time. Is it possible that the, I mean, the defamation bill is going through Parliament uh, at the moment we're about to go through it is it not possible that that side of things could be dealt with in the irish style with an amendment that says there will be a regulator uh, and one of the advantages of that will be uh, protection and liable in the following ways uh, when you de- that doesn't give you the off comment sir but it's a some way of a middle ground with an element of statute hugh grant's little dab there it won't, i mean from an actual real point of view it's probably quite cosmetic in its effect but it does uh, guarantee newspapers a degree of legal protection which might incentivize them into the to the new system but it leaves the ofcom question which is more politically dangerous uh, to one side yeah but stephen the the um, the arbitral arm will also have to deal with privacy as well as libel so i'm not and with twitter and social media and we've not mentioned them exactly so i i'm I don't think it will float in terms of your idea, although uh, uh, quite a sensible thought, but I just don't think it'll fly there. I, I mean, I, I listened there to, to Nick Cohen, and, you know, gosh, I must have said what he said a million times before. But is the, is the point not that we just reached this stage because we haven't been, not we particularly, but some of us haven't behaved too responsibly? And this is the lightest touch statute I can possibly think of, although... There are, and, and you know, one has to agree with Cohen over this. There are dangers, and you know, he's not alone. Private Eye want to stand outside and have stood outside. The Spectator have made it clear that they won't sign up. So there yeah, will right. be. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> but they, but they, um, they now asserting their their libertarian values, which I think we all we all hold roughly those values. We're talking here in the end about practicality of forging a way in which we can force the press to behave responsibly. They want it to go on, presumably, being as irresponsible as before. I don't think there's a public appetite for that, even if you, you know, regardless of one poll saying 71% of people think it's a great idea to hobble the press and 79% of people say it's a great idea not to hobble the press, you can get any answer you like by asking a question in an opinion poll. There should be better uh, regulation of opinion polls. That's the, uh, the lesson out of that. Don't <laughs> put ideas into their heads. I, lo- I lo- 
love the idea of these right-wing newspapers quoting John Milton all of a sudden. Can you imagine what they'd have done to Milton if the Ye Daily Mail and Ye Sun had been published in the 1650s? Blind old lefty, you know, all his fault, the king got his head chopped off. It would have done the same to Princess Di. They'd have given him a terrible time. It's monstrous. I like to travel optimistically, so the last thing I want to say is we mustn't forget the context in which all these discussions will, uh, will take place. One is court cases. Trials of all sorts of people we know about, and they're entitled to a fair trial, will provide a very unhelpful background for the newspapers and for David Cameron, as a matter of fact. And secondly, you know, whatever the powerful case Fleet Street makes for its own freedom, we know its genius for not getting the point and for abusing it will guarantee a few more absolutely horrendous cases. And that may alter the debate and tip it back again to a more manageable uh, and uh, uh, a realistic and reformed system. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's worth bearing in mind, I think, that, that Lord Justice Levinson actually seen a lot of seen a lot of the evidence, such as it is on uh, on phone hacking, and I think to a less extent on corrupt payments. That the things that we expect to be played out in courtrooms in, in in weeks and months to come. And of course, he's incredibly circumscribed about how how he can refer to it, because of course. Uh, of everyone's right to a fair trial but but these trials will come successively maybe from you know next autumn but certainly in 2014 with the looming backdrop of a, of a general election and it's an interesting bet for Cameron today to say I'm going to side I'm going to side with the press when you know Ed Miliband can gently say aren't you also sort of siding with your friends Rebecca Brooks and Andy Colson and that's going to look quite, you know, the, the environment and will look very different as those trials play out. And those it will be adversarial courtrooms. All sorts of evidence will be sort of flashed and bared. And I think the dynamic will be very interesting at that point. But one thing that was striking about the report, Dan, was the, uh, the there was precious little about the web. In fact, I think fewer than a thousand words out of around uh, one million. And our former colleague Emily Bell, now in the US, said that fact rendered the entire document more or less pointless. Did you think she had a point? Up to a point. I mean, I think it was one page is what I'd heard. I mean, which is in one sense crazy. Um, If you're looking forward, it sounds bonkers because, you know, know, one of the problems facing our business is a loss of print readers and, you know, and and our growing digital businesses. You know, how are we going to? We're looking more like broadcasters yet. We we don't wish to be regulated like them, certainly not. But, but, you know, at some point, you know, if you can – watch your television on your uh, sorry watch your newspaper on your tv screen through a browser then at what point you know are you different to a broadcaster and obviously they've got a very different regulatory environment so there's a whole lot of big grown-up questions to ask and this is an industry in in financial peril to a degree as a result and it's affecting newspapers not least uh, uh, some say above all the guardian very hard so we've got uh, no shortage of challenges, no discussion of that. We're all fighting about sort of ethical issues and we're fighting over the sins of the past and people want to talk about, you know, Levison's heard about sort of press abuses that happened over the last 15 years and in that sense, it's quite a depressing inquiry. But, you know, we have collectively, we have an image problem. There have been enough scandals, whether it's phone hacking or the one with the McCanns and so on and so on, that, that there needs to be some kind of redress. And newspapers in Britain occupy a distinct... powerful category in the media and in public life and I know that a lot of people want to say that blogs are as powerful as newspapers and Guido's as powerful and maybe he is I think it's pushing it a bit Rio Ferdinand's tweets or something like that yeah a lot of people read them but still don't think it's got the same impact as a newspaper does but you know we are a distinct set of institutions we have been regulated poorly if regulated at all we can and do upend people's lives when we get things wrong we can and do do some brilliant investigative journalism and change governments and bring down institutions when we get it right and and so I think we just 
just got to, you know, and we have the history that we have. And so we've got to deal with our baggage. We've got to, the environment needs to be reformed. And we've got to worry about the digital future. But that'll be the next inquiry or the next conversation. But I hope soon we can move to a conversation where we start to talk about how we're going to make things work digitally because uh, uh, it ain't quite working for us yet. I think, I mean, an inquiry that looks into the damaging power of the written word that doesn't look at other forms of how that written word is disseminated is has a weakness unquestionably uh, but it, but Dan's right in the sense that you have to deal with what you what, what there is at the moment and clearly to a certain extent you can define the newspaper industry at the moment and this is the issue that needs to be dealt with what he hasn't failed to, to deal with which I think is more important is the relationship between online sources that are not newspapers and newspapers themselves. And that, I think, is the, is the real weakness. You can, make a, you can say, well, it doesn't matter what bloggers do and how you can't regulate them anyway, which is, which is a fair enough point. But actually, newspapers now live in an ecosystem which is completely different to how it was 10 years before. The McAlpine uh, case is the most dramatic example of that, where a broadcast, broadcaster didn't reveal someone's name and then the online world picked it up and then it got back to the broadcaster and then the newspapers did something. And a failure to recognise that, I think, does make it look dated already. And in any event, in five years' time, this has taken a lot of money, a lot of time to get us to a new structure. If that structure is not fit for purpose in five years' time because the world has moved on, that is a very serious problem for Leveson, who doesn't want his report to sit on his dusty shelf that he kept uh, talking about but failing to clean. I, I think that that's the problem, that, that the report could become out of date in three, four, five years, and that would be a risk for him. And just a final question for all of you. Is the press in a, or any of you, is, is the press in a, in a better place today as, as a result of Leveson? Well, if you, if you read uh, tabloid newspapers and you love kiss and tell stories, you, you'll be feeling really sad because they've literally disappeared during the Leveson era. Uh, I mean, the news of the world disappeared itself, but its replacement, The Sun, is fairly tame in comparison. The Sunday Mirror and the people have stopped doing it largely. Uh, what will be really interesting to see is whether these now gradually return or whether that era is over forever, not least, by the way, not so much just to do with Leveson, but to do with the encroaching tort of privacy. Well, I think that the uh, the loss of kiss and tells and, and that type of salaciousness is, predates Leveson by some time. And you can see the gradual dwindling. Another major effect on tabloid newspapers has been the Bribery Act, which often doesn't get talked about. But that is a massive, massive influence in tabloid newsrooms in terms of what information they can now pay for. And that's had a huge effect, I think, on the content of, of some of them. I, I think that the press today will feel it could have been an awful lot worse they still got a, a, a dog in the fight in terms of it's still self-regulation on probation another time. So I suspect they'll, they'll be, be girding their loins for, for a bit of a further scrap on this and, and think it could have been an awful lot worse. There's so much bad stuff goes on that the press could expose, but uh, can't be bothered because it's preferred to be after footballers, uh, floozies. The Guardian uh, this week has gone after elaborate forms of tax dodging, and yet there is a deafening silence, and I wonder why that is from foreign-based tax-avoiding newspaper proprietors in the dear old street of shame. We love it, but it's pretty brazen. Well, on that note, I think we'll, uh, we'll end it. Uh, my thanks to all this week's guests, uh, Dan Sauer, Roy Greenslade, Stig Abel and Michael White. We're back next week as usual and Tom Clark will be back too with Politics Weekly. The producer was Phil Maynard and I'm John Plunkett. Thanks for listening. 
Guardian Books is pleased to present listeners of this podcast with a special offer on House of Fun, a bumper collection of Simon Hoggart's 20 years of parliamentary sketch writing. Labour launched its manifesto yesterday, or rather, it opened a coal hole and poured several tonnes of nutty slack down on the boat. I am extremely calm, the Prime Minister replied, but he said it like Herbert Lom as Inspector Clouseau's boss. Caroline Flint is regarded as something of a hard-line toady, an aardvark-tongued bootlicker, a member of an active service unit in the Greaser's provisional wing. To get your hardback copy of Simon's book for half price, go to guardianbookshop.co.uk forward slash hoggett and enter the code hoggett. This offer is for two weeks only and is exclusive to this podcast. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.